0: This podcast does not provide medical advice. Please listen to the complete disclosure at the end of the recording.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyone Dies, the podcast. I'm Marianne Matzo.
0: And I'm Charlie Neverett.
1: So, put on an old schmata, grab a little nosh. We have a bell that you will join in our Mishigas as we commemorate Holocaust Remembrance Day, which is celebrated on January the 27th, which is designated by the United Nations General Assembly as International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Since 2005, the United Nations and its member states have held commemoration ceremonies to mark the anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz in Birkenau and to honor the 6 million Jewish victims of the Holocaust and millions of other victims of Nazism. In the second half, I'm going to be talking about euthanasia and death with dignity, And in our third half, Charlie is sharing a story from a Holocaust survivor. So, Charlie, Mm -hmm. in honor of Holocaust Remembrance Day, are we going to have a recipe?
0: Absolutely. So let's look at the Holocaust Survivor Cookbook by Joanne Karras. In it, uh, most of the people who submitted recipes for the book are Holocaust survivors. The book includes pictures of their families before the Holocaust and of those who survived. There are stories of time in the concentration camps and the struggle for survival. I mean, just basic food, uh, and, or sadly, in too many cases, the lack of food, because this became a very important focus of daily life of, uh, of the prisoners in the camps who fantasized about feasts as they ate their daily meager portions of bread. Sometimes women in the barracks collected and exchanged recipes and took turns to write them down on whatever little scrap of paper they could find, or occasionally even steal. For example, Lillian Berliner from Hungary describes it this way. We were starved in Auschwitz, and to alleviate our numerous hunger pangs, we invented frequent dream meals, ranging between coffee clutches, luncheons, informal and formal dinner parties. We planned our menus carefully for hours and in great detail. Our favorite dishes and desserts took priority and were frequently repeated. The table settings, the color of dishes, tablecloths, napkins, flowers for each occasion, and the seating arrangements were also discussed. This may sound delusional, I know, but during these meal planning sessions, we were briefly transported to a normal world a world that was so far from our miserable reality. We actually tasted the dishes we prepared, and our hunger pangs disappeared during the hours of planning. We could hardly wait for the next planning session. So each, um, and again, uh, each each recipe reminded uh, the survivors of a taste of home cooking. Uh, Ruth Stein, for example, Ruth Steinfeld from Texas was only seven years old when she was sent away with her sister from the Gurs prison camp in Vichy, France. The girls survived, but their parents perished in Auschwitz-Birkenau. Uh, as Ms. Steinfeld recalls, I had no idea how to make a good soup. I do not remember exactly what my mother looked like, but I remembered the smell of her chicken soup. I worked on it, and worked on it until I felt I had my mom in my kitchen. Furthermore, uh, Rita Reitman writes about the Gato Gervik from Poland, noting, She was a warm and generous soul, and she cooked without recipes. My mother and I would gather around her as she cooked, guessing at the measurements so that we could duplicate her fabulous cooking. So, Marianne, our recipe for this week Lotion meat case. So uh, you may wonder, what is this?
1: You know, Charlie, I was going through this cookbook, and um, it's like it's really like a a storybook because you're reading about all these different people, and then there's their recipes Mm -hmm. that um, are are fascinating and different, and Really pretty cool. So I'm going through, and I I find this lotion miss look, case, and I read it, and I say, "Holy crap! My mom made this really." And yes, and so I re- so then I go back to the story, and the story is from a woman from Czechoslovakia, and my mother's my mother's mother was from Czechoslovakia. Oh, my grandfather okay. was from Russia, and my Mother's mother was from Czechoslovakia. Okay. And my mother would tell us, you know, she rarely made this actually, Charlie, but when she made it, I just loved it. And she said it was a depression meal. So mm-hmm. I never really thought about it being from a particular country or anything. Right. Um, but she said that when during the depression, when they didn't have money and they didn't have a whole lot that this would kind of fill everybody's belly and would right. have some pretty good nutrition to it. Well, so my kids were younger. I mean, I made it because I liked it. And when my oldest daughter was young, she didn't like it with the cottage cheese. So she just wanted like the buttered noodles. And then at some point in high school, I was putting aside just some buttered noodles for her from this dish. And mm-hmm. she said, I've grown up, Mom. I like it with the uh, cottage cheese in it now, too. So it's just such a maturing moment. Oh, my God, how quickly they grow. I know. So, And this is like, when you hear the recipe, you'll say, oh, my God, that's gross. But let me tell you, it's really, really good. And if you really aren't much of a fan of cottage cheese, let me tell you, warm cottage cheese gets kind of stringy and Uh good. like. I never would have imagined. So, in the recipe book, in the um, Holocaust Survivors cookbook, they have it a little different than my mom. So, I'm going to tell you how my mom made it. Okay. So, she'd chop up onions and put butter and onions in the pan and get them nice and soft. She'd cook um, egg noodles, boil the egg noodles according to the package directions, Mm -hmm. throw those into the um, butter and the... Uh, Onion, yeah, and then put in a whole container of cottage cheese and stir that around, yeah, and some sour cream and stir that around and get it all hot and you know stringy. And then you throw it in a bowl, and you have to literally throw it in a bowl,
2: yeah, no, I'm
1: kidding, and um, lots of black pepper and salt, and it is heaven on earth Mm. now. In the recipe that's in the in the cookbook, they they say uh, a pint of sour cream, two tablespoons of butter, a pound of cottage cheese, salt and pepper, and a 12-ounce bag of wide, wide egg noodles do like what I said. But they put it in a greased baking dish um, covered in the oven for 350 for 20 minutes. Oh, so I never okay. had it... I never had it baked sort of like macaroni and cheese. Mm-hmm. But next time I make it, I'm going to try it that way. So then when I was looking for a recipe that we could link to, well, it really is a thing. I mean, I just always thought it was something my grandmother had made up. So here I am at 63 learning once again, it's not all about me. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: And I'm sure that lesson will be repeated. Okay. <laughs> hey. What?
1: So, so there's a link. There's a link in the web page. And actually, as it turned out, the one that I found was um, Jason Alexander, you know, from Seinfeld fame, really, um, as well as his many musicals and things, was doing an interview, and he was saying his favorite thing his mom made was this Luxemic case. Oh, so, okay. And the and the recipe is in there. So I thought, well. Why not use Jason Alexander? If it's good enough for Jason recipe?
0: Alexander, then it's... Yes, mm-hmm. yes.
1: That's what I'm thinking. So, um, if... And we also put the link to the, the title and everything of this cookbook. This, I think this cookbook is wonderful. And the proceeds from the cookbook, the reason it was written, was to um, fund a soup kitchen in, I, I believe it was in Israel, to address um, hunger issues there. So that's what the money from the cookbook goes to.
0: So it's wonderful.
1: Check it out. Great stories.
0: And for that, that, uh, ladies and gentlemen, please go to everyonedies.org. That's every, the number one, dies.org to find resources and recipes from this podcast. If you are able to lend financial support to our nonprofit organization, Again, please go to everyonedies.org slash donate to make your tax-deductible donation. Also, we appreciate your questions and anything else you want to tell us by emailing mail at everyonedies.org. And again, every the number one dies.org. Also, please join our Facebook group, which is Everyone Dies. This time, everyone is the word itself. So everyone dies on Facebook. That's our Facebook group. And please remember to rate and review this podcast. Hello, Molly. It's so nice to have you back where you belong. Our Twitter correspondent, who is hoping you will follow us on Twitter and repost her tweets so that we stop making up names for her. Marianne, what's next?
1: That that poor girl. We do torture her. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And we love it.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm not complaining, but uh, so so it's right. two of us and one of her. So, uh, okay, great. We'll, 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 we'll continue. <laughs> we win. Yes.
1: So, um, continuing with our upbeat topic of the day. <laughs> yeah, really. Like,
0: okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. No, but, this is big. but, you this know, important. It, needs, yeah.
1: it needs to be talked about. Absolutely. We, you know, yes. Lest we forget, we need to talk about it. Yes. So, the second half, I'm going to be talking about euthanasia and death with dignity. And there's, I'm going to give you some definitions so that we kind of all are on the same page with what it is that I'm talking about. So the term euthanasia is taken from the Greek word euthanos, which means good death. Right. So the question in my head has always been, you know, do we really have to perform euthanasia in order to have a good death? And that's kind of really what I want to talk with you all about today. So euthanasia is the act of killing of a patient by a healthcare practitioner on the patient's request and in the patient's interest. Yes. So, um, you know, in this most recently in history, I know there'll be some people who don't know who Jack Kevorkian is. But for us old folks, we remember Jack Kevorkian, you know, during the um, late 70s, early 80s, who right. was... <clears throat> A physician who believed that people were suffering at the end of their life and that mm-hmm. they should be given an option to um, end their life if they want to. Correct. So, you know, Kevorkians believe that people were suffering and they should be able to end their own life. Um but his issue, you know, the issue with the law was that right. if he were to inject them right. with a lethal dose dose of medication, that mm-hmm. that would be murder because he's doing it to them. Right. Um. So he invented a suicide machine so that the patient could, like, just kind of hit a button. The machine would start, right. and um, it would give the per- person a, a lethal dose of medication.
0: You know, and what? some of the people. I, I'm, I'm sorry, but I, I forgot what um, that machine. It was what? Uh, okay how how would it um, how would it, it ad, ad, administer the that I don't know if I have to call it medication, but how how would it uh, well, how would it administer the the drugs that would? Uh...
1: So, th- it, it, the way he had it set up, it was yeah. an IV system. He would start the IV. Right,
0: that's what it and was. And then right, there right. was like
1: there was like a switch that right. the patient could knock against. Like one of these patients um, was somebody with ALS who was didn't have the functional right. ability to move, right. but mm-hmm. he was this patient was able to like make contact with the switch to. St- to set it into motion. The issue at the time was yes. that unless the patient could do it themselves right. and essentially have help with their own suicide or assisted suicide, mm-hmm. um, otherwise it would be considered murder. And every time that Kevorkian came up on charges for using his machine and helping a patient, yeah. he was acquitted because all he did was start the IV. Right. And made the means available to the patient to utilize. And these were people who, on their own, would like this patient. And there's the, and what Kvorkian always did was he recorded interviews with the patients ahead of time and recorded the the death, so that if he, and when he was brought up on charges, he could say, "Here's what happened." Here's what happened, right? And okay. um, there was always so much sympathy. And empathy for the patient themselves that he was never acquitted well
2: he no, was eventually you? but
1: we'll get to that okay so there's a difference in there's two types of euthanasia there's passive and active passive euthanasia is defined as allowing the patient to die by withholding treatment so let's say um, you 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 don't provide treatment treatment or you're not providing food and fluids or mm-hmm. whatever and so you're thereby allowing a person their natural death because you're not interfering you're just letting that happen
0: so with something like Whereas that if, if some, oh i'm sorry i'm sorry to interrupt you so with something like that if, if if you're not providing you know that food and something to drink is that to allow the person to die naturally is that painful to the person
1: no, and we you know, we have that podcast, remember, about artificial food and fluids. So right. people can go back and listen to that in terms of what happens if um, you're not utilizing artificial food and fluids. So um, active euthanasia, though, is defined as taking measures to directly cause a patient's death. So it's like, I'm going to do something, I'm going to give you an injection of something that's going to cause you to die. So physician-assisted suicide, or the short term is PAS, physician-assisted suicide, is defined as a situation.
0: I was going to say, I've also heard um, MAID, medical assistance in death, MAID. But I'm sorry, go on.
1: Which is is different. Which is different, and I'll get to that. Okay. So physician-assisted suicide is a situation where a doctor intentionally helps a patient to commit suicide by providing drugs for self-administration at that person's voluntary and competent request. Mm-hmm. So, the difference between that and medical aid in dying or MAID as you call as yeah. you mentioned it is different and that medical aid in dying follows the rules of law in the state where it's legal. So, assisting okay. a death is not legal in every state. It's legal in Ten states right. in this country
2: yes
1: and in other countries some countries it's legal other countries like you know britain it's not right so medical aid in dying so think of physician assisted suicide is in all the states where it's not legal okay. where you have your relationship with your physician um and you you're at the end of life and and you say i'm i'm terminal i I don't want to live like this anymore. I I want to be able to end my life whenever I want to. And I want a prescription for a legal, you know, for for drugs that if I took them, you know, would end my life. And the physician, so the code then for that is, this is, again, in a state where it's not legal, where your physician can say, you know, um, I'm going to write you a, a script for this. And on the script, it says take one every four hours because... That's how this drug is used. I just want you to know, though, if you take them all at once, this will end your life. And that's the code for the physician covers themselves because they're giving a, uh, a prescription that if used as prescribed is for pain management. But if you took them all at once, would end your life. Okay. So that's the code as how the physician um, can do participate in physician-assisted suicide in a state where it's not legal. Now, medical aid in dying is different in that in the 10 states where it's legal, there are rules about how that works. So if you're a resident of California, Colorado, District of Columbia, Hawaii, Maine, New Jersey, Oregon, Vermont, or Washington and you're 18 years or older, and you're mentally competent, meaning that you're capable of ma- making and communicating your healthcare decisions, and you're diagnosed with a terminal illness that will, that will, within reasonable medical judgment, lead to death within six months. You can go through a process by which you request medical aid in dying. You have to also be able to self administer and ingest the prescribed medication. All of these requirements must be met without exception. You will not qualify under aid and dying laws solely because of age or disability. And two physicians must determine whether all of these criteria have been met.
0: So once oh, that's
1: met, there's oh, sorry, a process. Once that's met, there's a process for which you go through the request and there's a link on our page in terms of how you go about doing it, everything that's required. You know, because it's law, it's laid out pretty clearly what Mm -hmm. it is that you need to do. So the legal part of it is very clearly um, laid out. The rest of it, in terms of phys- physician-assisted suicide or euthanasia, where somebody's actually doing it to you, that's where it's kind of getting muddy. So, common arguments in favor of legalizing assisted aid in dying um, are respect for patient autonomy, relief of suffering, and mercy. So, these are the arguments that people use when they say this sh- this should be available. Right. You know, it's only available in ten states. We 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 have. 50 states, Mm -hmm. the other 40 should have, you know, a mechanism within their law with which to make this legal. Right, when people
0: can make their own choices, yes.
1: So it's under those um, patient autonomy, relief of suffering, mercy. So what's autonomy? Autonomy refers to the governance over our own actions. We are all autonomous people. We can do whatever we want. You can wear the mask or not wear the mask. We can, you know, whatever. So in healthcare settings, this means that a patient determines which medical interventions to have or to deny. I can say, I want to have a, a respirator if I'm not able to breathe. Or I can say, I don't want that. I can choose. Patient autonomy serves as the justification for informed consent. Uh, but only after the explanation of the risks and benefits is the patient able to make a decision about treatments or participation in medical research. This logic, as it's argued, naturally extends to aid in dying. Patients are accustomed to making their own healthcare decisions throughout their life and should also be permitted to control the circumstances of their death. So that's the argument... Um, you know, in terms of autonomy. As for suffering, medicine is always aimed to relieve the suffering of patients from illness and disease. In the West, Hippocrates' ancient oath pledged to use treatment to help the sick, but not administer a poison to anyone when asked to do so. So that's part of the Hippocratic oath that Mm -hmm. um, physicians take. Okay. You know, it's always, you know, that first do no harm. So that's where this piece of this comes from. So in contrast to that, though, advocates of assisted aid in dying argue that relief of suffering through a lethal injection is humane and compassionate if the patient is dying and the suffering is unmanageable. So support from euthanasia is based on another fundamental moral principle, and that is mercy. Um... People who believe that assisted aid in dying should be legalized believe that euthanasia is far more ethical to have um, to those who have suffered terribly and terrible in terminal illness. That you don't leave people unable to breathe and in terrible pain. That you have um, something available to end that suffering. So those are the, all the arguments that um, support aid in dying. But there's also arguments against it. Um, there are people against euthanasia because they consider it murder. If you are um, taking into your own hands whether a person lives or dies, they consider that murder. Some have a concern that a person can be depressed about their condition and therefore don't want to live anymore. And it's not the the disease That's talking in that sense. It's the depression that's talking. And that if the depression were managed, they wouldn't want to die. Um, Others fear euthanasia will become a means of healthcare cost containment and become non-voluntary and against the rights and values of human life. And you might say for yourself, well, that's not going to happen. We're not going to end people's lives just because we don't have the money to take care of them. Or just because they're of a group, you know, let's say severely um, mentally retarded, you're not going to say, well, that group, you know, let's just euthanize them and look at all the money we could save. That would never happen, right, Charlie?
0: No, of course not.
1: Well. Well. Um, So let me give you an example. So there was a euthanasia program, which was – the systemic murder of institutionalized patients with disabilities in Germany. It predated the genocide of the European Jewry or the Holocaust by two years. So two years before the Holocaust started, there was a program of, of killing the, these people, institutionalized people with disabilities. The program was one of many radical eugenic measures which aimed to restore the racial quote-unquote integrity of the German nation. It aimed to eliminate, eliminate what eugenists and their supporters considered, quote, life unworthy of life. Those individuals who, they believed, because of severe psychiatric neurologic, or physical disabilities represented both a genetic and financial burden on German society and the state. Starting in the spring and summer months of 1939, several planners began to organize a secret killing operation targeting disabled children. Um, euthanasia planners quickly envisioned extending the killing p- program to adult disabled patients living in institutional si- which began in the fall of 1939. The categories of patients whom they killed were those suffering from schizophrenia, epilepsy, dementia, encephalitis, and other chronic psychiatric and neurological disorders. Uh, Those who were not of German or, quote, related blood, the criminally insane, or those committed on criminal grounds, those had been confined to the institution in question for more than five years. These people were gassed and cremated and considered by historians to be the pilot program for the Holocaust. So people who are against euthanasia use what they call the slippery slope argument against assisted death in any situation.
0: So So, why, why, slope, so with that, why... Or maybe you're about to say that. So, you know, so my thought is, you know, why can't that happen now? Why wouldn't well, exactly it happen it now? exactly,
1: it can't. Well, it could. And that's why the slippery slope argument exists in that they're saying, so the slippery slope argument, is like if you're on a slope and you put one foot down right. and they you build. start to slip, you're going to end up at the bottom in a heap. Right. And so what they're saying is, nope, you say no to any of this. Because as soon as you say yes to this one group, how long is it going to take for you to rationalize? Well, it's also okay for this group, and it's also okay for this group, and you're slipping down that hill. Right. So that argument, the slippery slope argument, says under no circumstances are you going to condone voluntary euthanasia because it's a slippery slope toward allowing involuntary assisted killing. Um, there may be ways in which... Pressure could be put on individuals to die or end their lives because they may seem as burdens to their family. They may also use it as a method of avoiding heavy medical expenditures that may be needed in cases that are complicated. Um, Some of the arguments favoring the practice... um, have been found to include the need to relieve severe and incurable pain in the context of terminal illness or extremely poor quality of life, allowing patients to exercise freedom of choice and freeing up medical resources to help others. The World Health Organization recommends that governments devote more attention to pain relief and palliative care before considering laws to allow euthanasia. Most patients who request euthanasia change their minds once satisfactory pain control is established. So way back you know, in the 70s, was it the 70s? No, it was in the 80s. Way back in the 80s and 90s when um, Oregon was the first state to legalize assisted death, uh-huh. what they did is they put in place really good access to palliative and hospice care. Because this was the theory, is like if you you're, you're wanting to die because you're hurting, because you're suffering. If you weren't suffering, would you prematurely want to end your life? And so what they did is they made sure that there was excellent palliative care, good hospice care available to people. There were people who participated in the assisted suicide, the aid in the medical aid in dying program. Yeah. got their prescription. But then when you talk to them, they said, I like knowing it's there. Exactly. I like knowing I can if I want to. Yeah. But most people who are facing the end of their life, like actively facing the end of the life, who are, who are terminally ill and are, are realizing that whatever disease they have isn't going to be cured when you talk to those people, and I was involved in research at UMass Boston, going out and interviewing people in these situations, yeah. they tell you, every day is so precious to me. Every minute is so precious to me. I do not want to prematurely leave. Now, if they were wracked in, ins- in insufferable pain or you know, just really, really suffering from not being able to breathe or whatever,
2: mm-hmm. they
1: might have a different view which is why for people who are in that situation, having that prescription says, I control if I exactly. stay or if I yes. leave. Yeah, And and that's the difference. It's not that they're in such a hurry to leave. It's really an issue of control and self-agency. So when symptoms are properly controlled, fears dealt with um, appropriately, Uh, practical emotional and spiritual help is provided and people feel safe, it's very rare for people to ask again for death by euthanasia. According to the Institute of Medicine report, palliative care provides relief from pain and other symptoms, supports quality of life, and focuses on patients with serious advanced illnesses and their families. It can be delivered in several ways across the continuum of healthcare settings, including in the home, nursing homes, long-term acute care facilities, acute care hospitals, outpatient clinics. Relieving pain, restoring dignity, improving quality of life, and giving people back control over their lives is good palliative care and can alleviate the need for euthanasia in order to help someone have a good death. The New England Journal of Medicine study of hospice nurses and social workers in Oregon reported that symptoms like pain and depression, anxiety, extreme air hunger, meaning you know, inability to breathe, and fear of dying were less pronounced among hospice patients who had requested aid in dying medication, indicating that strong palliative care benefit of having an aid in, aid in dying prescription on hand, regardless of whether or not it gets filled. So I did my dissertation on assisted suicide and, and specifically nurse assisted suicide in terms of who it is that really is with people and um, in these situations. And this was, you know, back in what was that? 80, no, 96, 90. Yeah. 95, 96 was when I was working on my dissertation. Okay, And that was the Conclusion that I came to that really excellent palliative care can remove that, um, that, that need or that press for uh, aid in dying. If you're suffering, um, health per- healthcare practitioners should identify the reasons that make a patient's request for youth in Asia and find solutions to enhance their quality of life. Human rights gives everyone the right to the best medical care and management to face different diseases and their signs and symptoms that affect quality of life domains. And that's what good palliative care is. If we do palliative care really well and people have access to it, there are very few circumstances where a person is going to say, no, I want to leave early. Even though my symptoms are managed, I want to leave early and um, I want... To be able to have the right to do that, what questions do you have about that, Charlie?
0: So, a couple of things in a situation with um, uh, you know, again, you know, medical assistance in uh, in dying. I understand, you know, a doctor cannot, you know, hand you you know, the, the pills or whatever, which, which will, uh, you know, for you to end your life. Uh, but if a person is, is so weak that they cannot, and, you know, and it's often referred to as a a cocktail is, is not, uh, strong enough to, you know, hold a glass with that cocktail and, and drink it him or herself. Can a family member help that person, um, you know, drink that cocktail. I mean, like, you know, hold the pers- hold it for the person if the person has... Are
1: you talking in terms of, of the medical aid in dying in terms of the laws where it's legal? Yes. No. The law clearly says that the person has to be able to do it themselves. Got it. And so then you have to... I have to ask you, Charlie, if you've got somebody who isn't strong enough to... To drink the cocktail or to do whatever, and they're um, they're not suffering; they're just there. Why is it then necessary to prematurely end their life? And we have an interview this week that that we did with um, a man named Luke, whose mom was in exactly that situation, and his belief was, you know, we we put dogs down. And don't let them linger like this. Why don't we do this for humans?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, you know, in our value system, humans are different than dogs. And again, with that whole slippery slope thing, if you say, "Well, they're just laying there, barely breathing," let's just give them a, a little jump to get over to the other side. Well, if that gets proved, what makes what stops you then from the next step of, well, they're able to talk but they're not able to move let's just give them a little bit to get them over to the other side and so the discussion with luke the the radio show which you know we link with this podcast i'd love for you guys to listen to because the question that luke and i ended up having is what is that value in those in that last days of life is there something Luke needed to learn? Is there something Luke's father needed to learn? Is there something that his mom, even though she wasn't really um, with it, needed to be able to do in terms of her time with her husband and her son? Like what he described, she was... Um, uh, she was being cared by for by the Macmillan nurses, which are hospice nurses in England. Yeah. Um, his Luke and his dad went every day to see his mom. And Luke even described one of the nurses staying late one night to um, do his mom's nails and, you know, fix her hair because she felt close to his mom. And, and because of the descriptions that Luke and his dad has, like, was something that would have been important to her. So to let yourself, even in that extremely passive state, be nurtured and cared for is part of what makes us human. And as much as Luke had been at the time of our interview saying this, she should be allowed to, you know, be given an injection and leave. In fact, his mom died two days after our interview. You know, she didn't linger forever. And um, and I want to get back in touch with Luke and, and see if maybe he'll talk with us about once he's since he's gone through this in this way, has he changed his thought about euthanasia? But I haven't talked with him, so I don't know.
0: So I'm sorry. Um, where um, where uh, is where's this uh, available? Uh, you said you, you interviewed with Luke. Where and. Um,
1: so we have, you know, the radio show on Passionate World Talk Radio. Whenever, um, And I'm sorry, what, what is it called? Our passionate,
0: passionate what?
1: Pa- passionate World Talk Radio. Okay. And when, when we, on our webpage, if you go up to the top right, I think it's top right, um, but on the top bar um, on the website, you'll see um, it says radio shows or something like that. You can click on that. And you can see um, a list of our radio shows. And you can also just, you know, search on Spotify or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. Look for also for Everyone Dies, um, the radio show, and you can click on that. So in both ways, you can find it. Plus, we, we link them together when the content goes together.
0: So basically, there are... So what you were describing, you know about, you know, this gentleman and what you had said just before that, there are safeguards in place to avoid a slippery slope.
1: Well, there are now. That's one of the arguments against, um, you know, assisted suicide or euthanasia and also medical aid in dying because of the rules associated with the law. It those also prevent that slippery slope that oh, let me hold the glass for mom and give her the cocktail. Nope, the law says you got to be able to take it for yourself. Got it. So, um, there are because that's one of the arguments against. Um, so also take a look at our additional resources for this podcast on our webpage. We also have our Yiddish dictionary for the opening in case you don't know what all of those world words meant. Um, Charlie, in our third half, uh, you're reading um, one of the bios or stories from the Mm -hmm. Holocaust cookbook, right? Right.
0: Yes. Um, A gentleman uh, named William H. Donat. uh, He lives in Purchase, New York. And this is what he wrote. Food was scarce in the Warsaw Ghetto in 1943. While my father and the other printers were marched to work under armed guard to the German printing plant outside the ghetto, I would spend the day with my mother at the ghetto's last pharmacy. I was only five years old, and I could easily find distractions in the many nooks in the basement of the store. Occasionally, my parents and the other people living in the building at 44 Bronowska Street were able to gather the ingredients to make a clowant. The ladies would wash and prepare the elements and send the pot down to the bakery that was located in the building where it baked overnight. When finally it was ready the next day, we would all have a good meal. Later that year, it became clear to my parents that the ghetto would soon be liquidated. Women with young children would be sent directly to the gas chambers at Treblinka. Because my father worked outside the ghetto, he had an opportunity to contact some of his Christian friends to ask if any of them would take his five-year-old son. After trying many prospects, he finally found an older couple who were willing to take me. There was little time. My mother prepared me by teaching me the prayers a Christian child would know from the moment he could speak. She told me to remember that I was never in the ghetto and that my father was a Polish officer who was a POW and my mother was sick in the country. There were so many things she didn't have time to mention. Several weeks later, when I, had a, when I had been smuggled out of the ghetto by my father, pushing me in the handcart used for transporting paper to the printing plant, my new Auntie Maria prepared an especially good dinner for me. She then asked me if I had liked it. Oh, yes, Auntie, it was delicious, almost as good as clowant. On hearing that, she blanched. She scolded me to never say that word again, because it was a word that could betray me to our neighbors and could cause us trouble. I never used that word again. But I was betrayed to the police anyway, and had to spend the remaining two years of the war in an orphanage in the small town of Otwok near Warsaw.
1: you imagine a five-year-old having to no.
0: No, I try can't. to
1: understand that and remember that?
0: No, I can't marry it. And while and and while that I could
1: even remember my phone number at age five.
0: Yeah. And while you know, I I I can't imagine that happening today. (laughs) Really, who imagined that happening? And you know, you know, two generations ago. And while you don't want to live in the past, I (laughs) mean, it's still important to remember. That that's happened.
1: Well, but but we're also separating children from their parents. What do I you mean? mean? I, well, you know, in on the border.
2: <gasps> yes, at, in Mexico. There we are. Yeah. Yes. I mean, yeah. I mean, I
1: assume that they're being fed and that they're being cared for, but I don't know that. Do you?
0: No. No, and there are too many stories that they're not you know not, not having profitable medical care and just a trauma being separated from your child,
1: yeah, I mean I, how do you understand that how do you i mean it's it's a different language, it's a different situation it's how do you explain that to a little kid and as a mother or for you as a father to say. You go this way, and your child's going that way. How is that different than how people were separated when they came off the trains at Auschwitz or any of the other camps?
0: No, you're absolutely right. What was yeah.
1: that that fi- that film that you were in that we talked about? Um, what the the thing you most recently were in? Oh, on, um, uh, was
0: it? Um the Hunters.
1: The Hunters. So yeah. if our listeners haven't watched The Hunters, what is that HBO or?
0: Oh, Poo. Or was that? Um, no, Amazon. Amazon, right?
1: Amazon? I don't know. I don't remember. But Am- if you Amazon, Google Amazon. The hunters,
0: yeah, Amazon. Yeah.
1: If you Google The Hunters, um, and you know, Charlie, I went through, you know, 12 years of Catholic school and I went through nursing school and then I went to get my bachelor's.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I was in my early 20s when I took a class that um, a lot of the reading was about the Holocaust. And I remember sitting there, I was married, I was like, I don't know, 22, 23 years old, saying, what's this Holocaust? Really? I uh-huh. had never in my Catholic education... Or in my home, ever knew about the Holocaust, and I started reading. I was like, "Holy crap! How come I didn't know about this?" And it just was not had never been taught. And then when I saw the hunters, you know, recently at right. sixty three, and the whole issue of Nazis in America and our country, you know, oh
2: yeah. yeah, making
1: it possible for them to be here and bringing them here, I'm like, "Wait a minute, what?" And I was like sort of reading and ordering books and reading about it. It was like, how is it I'm 63 and I didn't know about this? Yeah. So, you know, and I have, I have two masters and a PhD and I've totally missed this stuff. What the heck? So I think that there's a lot of stuff that goes on, obviously, that even as much education as you have can be totally outside the realm of what you've heard or learned. And so I would really suggest to our listeners to kind of delve and learn a little bit more history.
0: Yeah, and even, I mean, yeah, if you have the, the time and inclination, you know, delve into it. Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's the same thing with, with uh, you know, America's, you know, our history uh, with slavery. I mean, this goes back 400 years. Um, and it's something that many people would rather forget or, you know, put back into the past. Oh, it doesn't affect me. But, you know, it, the great thing about, about Germany, it took just absolutely 100% responsibility for what Germany did, um, you know, to all the victims of the Holocaust, all 12 million people. Uh, you know, primarily of course, uh against uh against Jewish people. Um just re- accepted responsibility, never shirked it and yeah, just took complete responsibility, which is something we have not done here with uh, with slavery. So yeah.
1: Well thanks everybody for listening.
0: Yes. And please stay tuned for future episodes of Everyone Dies. Our thanks to our executive producer, Major General Retired David Gillette, our producer Sandy, John, our technical advisor, Tom Hartman, our administrative advisor, Molly, our Twitter correspondent, and our friends, family, and our loyal listeners who are supporting our work at Everyone Dies. This is Charlie Navarette.
1: And I'm Marianne Matzo, and we look forward to talking with you soon. Remember, every day
2: is a gift. This podcast does not provide medical advice. All discussion on this podcast, such as treatments, dosages, outcomes, charts, patient profiles, advice, messages, and any other discussion are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice or treatment. Always seek the advice of your primary care practitioner or other qualified health providers with any questions that you may have regarding your health. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard from this podcast. If you think you may have a medical emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. Everyone Dies does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, practitioners, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned in this podcast. Reliance on any information provided in this podcast by persons appearing on this podcast at the invitation of Everyone Dies or by other members is solely at your own risk.